Salute. Slancha. Cheers. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and events with your guide, master of mixology, and Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. So sit back and get ready to stir it up. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on 570 KVI. And welcome to Happy Hour. Yes, I am your host, your weekend wine guy, your master mixologist, advanced sommelier, Christopher Chan. Hey, thanks for joining us today and every Saturday, 11 a.m. to noon, for Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, featuring the best in wines, spirits, cocktails, fresh beers, great food, events and education all around the Puget Sound. Right here on Happy Hour Radio, 570 KVI. Hey, I invite you all to extend an invitation to your friends, coworkers, and all the party people to tune in and play along at home. That's right. If you're seeking answers to life's most difficult questions in wine, spirits, and more, send us an email to ask at happyhourradio.net. We'll answer your question on air, and I'll send you a personal reply. Hey, and for some dreadful reason that you've been pulled away from the radio, or for those streaming on live uh, on the desktop, don't despair, because you've (laughs) had me a hello. Our audio library of previous broadcasts is available online at happyhourradio.net. 24-7 VIP access at happyhourradio.net. I'd like to give a shout-out to our friends in Walla Walla and everyone who's making world-class Syrah. This year, 2014, marks the 30th anniversary of Walla Walla Valley Wine Region. Hey, I've got my tickets, and you should too. Join me as we celebrate Walla Walla Valley Wine and the world of Syrah. Make your plans for a long travel weekend, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, June 19th to 21st in Walla Walla. The Wine Alliance there and many of the top producers of Syrah are throwing a worldwide celebration with wine dinners, wine tastings, seminars, and more. Your chance to meet winemakers from Sonoma, Paso Robles, even Australia, where they make Shiraz. One of the coolest wine cats, Mr. Rajat Parr, wine director behind the Michael Mina Group, a formidable culinary empire in itself, will host and serve as moderator for the winemaking seminar. Hey, get your hotel reservations while they're hot. Tickets and information available at wallawallawine.com. As always, we strive to bring you the best in the world of adult beverages. Can I say adult entertainment? (laughs) Anyhow, today's happy hour is the shizzle. Very excited to have in our fresh food segment my dear friend, Miss Robin Pollard, sharing her story of how coffee beans are making lives better and certainly more delicious with Pollard Coffee Company. And truly an honor to host two of Washington's wine pioneers, visionaries in studio today, one being Mr. Steve Metzler, founder of Classical Wines of Spain, where we'll learn how to speak Spanish wine. And two, the man behind the mystery, Andrew Will. Well, actually, founder winemaker Chris Comarda and the story behind that famous label. Chris, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks. <laughs> hey, I'm not sure that people know that your winery is on Bastion Island. Tell us how you got started and how you made the VI your home. Um, I worked at uh, Il Bistro in the market for... Uh, almost 17 years, and during that time I bought wine. I had other restaurants I'd worked at, too. I'd bought wine, and I'd been interested since uh, my early 20s. Um, and uh, in the late 80s, I decided would <clears throat> make some wine just as kind of a learning exercise. Uh, I, I was so fascinated after the uh, second vintage that I decided that um, I had to, I had to get bonded and start making wine, and I found a, a small space, about 600 square feet, at the bottom of Queen Anne Hill uh, on 15th, and uh, started making wine in 1989. The first fruit came from um, Ciel de Cheval Vineyard and uh, Shampoo Vineyard, which was then called Mercer Ranch. All right, so Ciel de Cheval is on Red Mountain, the AVA founded in 2001, and Shampoo is in Horse Heaven Hills. That's right. And that's Paul, named after Paul Shampoo, purchased Mercer Ranch. It is. In 1997, uh, we formed a partnership with Paul as the majority owner at that time, um, Quilcita Creek, Woodward Canyon, Powers, and Hedges, who uh, eventually got out of it, um, was involved in that purchase from the uh, Mercer family. And um, yeah, we changed the name then to Shampoo Vineyard. Um, and when you were working at Il Bistro, I imagine you tasted a lot of Italian wines. We had, like, fabulous list. I mean, the wine world was so different then. 
um, at Zephyr, for instance, where we got Gaia, we could have, we'd we'd sell a bottle of sixty one, we'd get a bottle of sixty one, we'd sell a bottle of seventy four. We had like seven or eight, nine vintages of Gaia on the list. I mean, one year the eighty vintage wasn't very good for him, and um, it was eight dollars a bottle. We were pouring it at the bistro as a house wine, and that's how different the wine world has uh, become. Eighties were something else back then. Yeah. Speaking with Chris Camarda of Andrew Will Winery. If you're interested in uh, finding about the wines we're chatting about, check out andrewwill.com. So, speaking of Andrew Will, who is Andrew Will? Um, my uh, sister was a partner with me when we started, and one of her sons is Andrew, and my son is Will, who's now 26 and started to work with me. So that was, uh, that was the, uh, where the name came from. Um, um, it's been, uh, it's been a really good name for us. I remember the first time Robert Parker wrote about the wine. He said, that Mr. Will sure knows how to make Cabernet. I know. It's it's the funniest uh, inside joke. We're all saying, who Andrew Will is? What a cool guy. We've never met him. <laughs> I know. Neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> he could be your uh, alternate personality or something. Yeah. Hey, so we're celebrating the 25th anniversary for Andrew Will. That's right. Um, it's been uh, fascinating for me to be making wine for this long of a time um especially grateful to be making it in washington um it's uh been a period of e- extreme growth uh, not only in the number of uh an amount of acreage that's been planted but the knowledge that winemakers have brought to bear on on the state and i think there's a lot more to do to to for the world to un- to understand the real definition of washington and so that it doesn't fall into some gray area sort of a a poor cousin of another region. So over the last 24 vintages, do you have some favorites, or is wine such an evolving entity that it changes? It can be your favorite one year, but you might like another wine another year. Uh, no, I definitely have favorites. I mean, I I love the 95s. I love the 94s. Um, 97, too. After that, um, a cooler year, a different kind of vintage, 2000. I like those wines. And in the last few years, I would say that the 05 and, and the 07 were my favorite wines. That's cool. And you have library selections going way back to 1989? I do. Yeah, I have very few bottles of 89 left. Six, I think. Uh, Merlot, I might have one Cabernet. Um, I think I have no more 95 Sorella left. But um, um, it's uh, I definitely have favorite wines. And it, it's been really gratifying to see how wines have aged and what years uh have allowed uh for the right conditions to for wines to become more interesting through we're time. speaking with Chris Camarda, founder winemaker and uh well the father of will in Andrew will winery um twenty five years that's amazing that's the silver anniversary and you said you were bonded in eighty nine or eighty eight eighty nine eighty nine and what number bond were you you know i I don't really remember i I think it was like 80 or 60 or something like that. I, I can't remember. I know that the, the way they do it is it, there's a number one and a number two, but once those, and they were probably, they're out of business, but the numbers never go back. So they just, I don't know how many, I think there was only about 30 or 40 wineries back then in Washington. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was in my basement last night and I found a poster of Washington wineries from 1989 and I looked at those, some of those labels don't exist. Yeah, I'm sure. I should it's... bring a picture of that. I should probably put that on my Facebook page. Yeah, it's um, interesting. And how many wines are you producing now? Um, we make wine from three vineyards, uh, two Blondes Vineyard, still uh, Shampoo Vineyard, and Ciel du Cheval. Um, I make a little bit of Sangiovese from Ciel du Cheval uh, also, but mostly the wines are uh, blends uh, from each vineyard of Merlot, Cabernet, and Cab Franc. And you've brought two wines today. Which are those? Um, the 2010 and the 2011 Two Blondes. Two Blondes. And the Two Blondes are named after? Um, uh, Melody uh, Fluckenstein and Bill Fluckenstein are my partners in that vineyard. And Melody is a blonde. And, and my wife, Anne, who passed away some time ago, she was a blonde. And uh, Bill was the genius who came up with the, the Two Blondes <laughs> name. I love it. Speaking with Chris Camarda of Andrew Will Winery. And coming up on the show, I've got Robin Pollard of Pollard Coffee Company. And we're going to learn how to speak Spanish wine with Steve Metzler of Classical Wines of Spain. Right here on Happy Hour Radio.
Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KBI. Time for another round. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio, Seattle's most spirited hour of talk with Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. And welcome back to Happy Hour. I'm thrilled to be chatting with the man behind Andrew Will Winery. Chris Camarda, winemaker, celebrating 25 years this year. 2014 will be his 25th vintage in Washington wine. A lot has changed, um, except the quality of your wines. And you poured me a little bit of the 2010 Two Blondes Vineyard Red. Tell us about that. Um, The vineyard um, was planted uh, starting in 2000. And um, it's been a, a tremendous learning experience and tremendous experience for me in general. Um, we had to make uh, corrections to what we were doing, and we found that making these corrections worked out, and then we kept getting better grapes as each year went out. So it's been really gratifying doing that. Um, the vineyard is the coolest site. It's near Zilla, coolest site that I, that I get fruit from. Um, it's uh, an area that was perhaps neglected early on, in the uh, uh, in the last twenty five years, because there wasn't uh, uh, as much focus on on the area as as could have been brought to bear, but I think that's changing now. Um, I love the uh, aromatics of the wine. I think that that comes through maybe because of the coolness a little uh, partly, um, and it's just uh, I had to replant part of the vineyard um, because I didn't have the clones that I wanted. So it's it's been. It's been really great uh, doing it. It's, um, it's it really added a lot to my to my appreciation of winemaking and and uh, a lot more depth, I think, to to what I to what I'm doing. The Two Blondes Vineyard. Did you break ground? Were there vineyards surrounding that area at the time, or were you a pioneer as well? Uh, no, Sheridan. Uh, oh. Scott Greer is right next door, and I had made wine for him in '99, and I liked what I saw there. The property happened to be for sales uh, next to it, so it's in 36 acres. So that's when I bought it. Is that right by the winery, his winery, and Deneen Winery? Uh, he's about a half a mile. Deneen is actually the vin- one of Deneen's vineyards is is contiguous with us, with me. Um, but um, the winery uh, that Scott makes wine at is about a half a mile away from from his vineyard from Sheridan. When Andrew Will first came out, you started making 100% varietal wines. Was that correct? I did. I made uh, up to 11 wines. All single vineyards too, weren't they? Um, Pretty much, but I also made uh, blends um, of, uh, uh, for instance, there'd be a Washington Merlot, a Washington Cabernet, and that could come from any of the vineyards. But um, I was making wine from Pepper Bridge, um, Clipson. Seven Hills, um, Sheridan, uh, CL Shampoo, and, and then eventually Two Blondes. And Two Blondes is a uh, planted as a Bordeaux vineyard where you've got Cab Merlot, Cab Franc, etc. Exactly, and and we have a little bit of Malbec too. And and further, we, as I said, we the 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 clones that I wanted weren't available to me originally, and I got a little impatient and planted the whole thing. Well, four years later, I ripped out seven acres and replanted it with clones that I did want, primarily French. And uh, we've done a lot of work with that, a lot of comparison between uh, these clones and, and what's called the Washington clone, not only here but in California. And, and we I feel very strongly that that uh, clonal selection is something where a lot of work can be done in this state. Rarely in my wine career have I ever heard a winemaker say they were impatient. That's true. And you say the Washington clone, is that a clone of Merlot, Cab Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon? Right. For for instance, for Cabernet, um, the state is primarily planted with clone eight. um, And the same follows with the Merlot clone. Uh, There's one clone that is dominant in the state. um, And there's historical reasons for that. Um, Because we have yet to uh, experience any kind of problems with phylloxera, although it has existed in the state forever, it it hasn't moved, we've been able to, to... um, use cuttings for uh, and own, as it's called, own, you know, have a, our own rooted plants. So we don't need to use rootstock. Um, that allowed for people to quickly multiply the uh, 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 plants that they had as they expanded, and it was much more ex- less expensive to do it that way. Um, and that's the history of it in the state. Um, I think if the phylloxera had taken hold here, it would be much different. 
but it didn't. And now I, you know, I, you know, Ben Smith has different clones. Uh, Jim Holmes at CL is is different clones, and I. And 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 at shampoo, we've replanted sixty acres using uh, some one ninety one, some of the stuff I'm high on, and some other things. So it's it's a little technical, but um, take my word for it; these are going to be better wines in the future. And tell us the sapage of the two thousand ten two blondes red. Um, it was a relatively cooler, so we have forty three percent merlot and thirty eight percent cabernet sauvignon, and just seventeen percent cab franc. A little bit of malbec is in that. Um, as I said, this was a cooler, lower alcohol. Almost, you know, just right around 13% um, alcohol. We are harvesting as far into November, um, letting the fruit hang as long as we could. And we were also, not because we were getting any greater sugar, but because it, there was no harm in letting it letting it hang then. But we, had, we were late at Shampoo. We were late at CL. Everything was pushed at least two weeks into the fall. It was a long season for everybody, and yet this ripeness is beautiful. The fruit is um, very mid-palate, lots of berry, uh, red fruits with a hint of uh, blue and purple. Um, great tannin structure, and you've pulled back on some of the new oak, I've noticed. I have. Um, I've, I've used probably less wood than, than a lot of people that, are, uh, uh, that I know whose wines I like. But um, for me, it's, it's just uh, uh, something I, I really don't care for if the wines are, are out of balance in, in terms of the amount of oak that they have on them. So I'd rather have less than more. Beautiful structure on the 2010. Great acidity in the tannin management, like I mentioned. Um, and the oak is uh, just soft. Um, but this wines will live a long time, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, I wines from the, you know, a year similar was 93. was a very cool year. That was the only year that I actually had to uh, capitalize the wines, um, get the alcohol levels up. Those wines, while they're not blockbusters, um, are still very good. They drink very well right now, um, and I think the 2010 vintage will be better than that vintage, so fully 20 years on these wines. Had you made a, a wine with 13% alcohol back in 89 or 90, by chance? Right you know, I there? don't think they were that low then, because we would we were trying—those were pretty warm years. And, and, and we, back then, the way—I I was copying— you know, the people whose wines I liked in Washington. And everybody pretty much was influenced by what Davis said, uh, the university, you know, in California, University of California, Davis. And that was that if you are got too much sugar in it, you're, it would stick and that would ruin the wine. Um, turns out that's not really the case. And so we've seen over the years this people picking it riper and riper. Well, you got in the wine game at the right time because who was making wine back in 1989? That would be Galitzin and Figgins and Small and Saint Michel and Powers and who else? Kiona, maybe. Um, Rob yeah. Griffin was making oh, wine yeah, then. He yep. at, when I worked at the Oyster Grotto in '75, he used to deliver to us Preston. Preston. I mean, that yeah, was you know right. Kinzerling was back was open Katarina then. Arbor Crest. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was the uh, what's his name John Rowling at Yakima Winery, wasn't that? I think that was there. That was the winery. Uh, I think I that's on my poster. Kiona. Yep. Yeah. I think Scott. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. And you brought the 2011 uh, vintage of the same wine. Is the Sapaz change for this vintage? Um, it's it's pretty much the same. It's 48 percent Cabernet, 40 percent Merlot, 12 percent Cab Franc. Um, a year that was similar. Very similar up uh, into mid September to the 2010s and into October, and then. We had a, a a couple of weeks where the temperatures rose just enough to uh, to move the uh, alcohol levels, to move the sugars up a little bit, to get a little bit riper, but still really uh, structure oriented wine. I, I guess I'd call it, but um, a little bit more flesh than in the 2010s. Interesting enough, this wine it seems more soft to me on the palate. This approach is just more gentle, um, even with the added Cabernet Sauvignon percentage-wise. Right, and I think that's all due to the weather. I mean, the, the you know, it just it just got pushed just just enough to to create that that quality in the wine of softness and a, and a a nice sense of ripeness. Is Two Blonde Vineyards your largest production now? Um, you it is usually yes. We sell um some of the fruit, but I invariably it seems like I end up with fruit that I wasn't planning on, and and so I make the wine. Um, yeah, it is. Although. Some years, um, shampoo. There's more shampoo than than two blondes, but yeah, but usually it is. 
That's delicious. I'm really excited that um, just like uh, last week's Desert Wind Winery, the Rua 2011 was very approachable, as is this Andrew Will 2011 Two Blondes Vineyard Red. Uh, fantastic. I understand you're making some other wines. Is that true? You did a Pinot Gris one year and a Syrah and still doing that? I do. I I make those because um, I have enough money to make wines that are interesting to me to make, and it's fun as a wine. <laughs> it's fun as a winemaker to just to 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 make what you want. I mean, I made some Viognier the last two years from an interesting vineyard uh, called Antoine Creek near Chelan. Um, I the Pinot Gris. I I learned. I experimented quite a bit with making whites, um, either in stainless steel or barrel, with the natural yeast or without. And I came away with some strong ideas, so that now uh, the Viognier, the uh, the Pinot Gris, were all made all made in stainless steel on, and using just the indigenous yeast, the, the natural yeast, and um, it's been very interesting. I had less uh, love of Syrah than I might have, so after nine years, I I gave that up. But I thought I was getting somewhere, but I don't know. It's, I, anyway, I don't make Syrah anymore. We're speaking with Chris Camarda, the founder and man behind Andrew Will Winery, um, which is on Vashon. And uh, do you have a tasting room over there in Vashon? I don't. We have uh, one day, uh, the first day, Sunday, usually the second Sunday uh, next year uh, oh. in September when we're open to the public. Until then, you can have your own tasting room at home with a bottle of Andrew Will. You can find it at esquin.com, uh, McCarthy Insuring, and all your fine wine shops around Seattle and beyond. Uh, check out his website, andrewwill.com, and you'll find uh, some of that Pinot Gris and Antoine Creek Viognier. Colin Thorine is a friend of mine in New York. I'm excited to go see him um, and chat up about uh, some of that Viognier you're making. Chris, it's been a pleasure to connect with you again and chat up about, uh, well, your history. You're an interesting guy. Great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the Chris, uh, time. Thank you. It's Chris Camarda with Andrew Will Winery. And um, coming up next, I'm going to speak with Robin Pollard of Pollard Coffee Company, which is also located on Vashon Island. Coincidence? Maybe. <laughs> and uh, Steve Metzler, who is a pioneer in the wine industry, he started Classical Wines of Spain here in Seattle. And um, Robin, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So, you were in the wine business prior to jumping in the coffee business, um, so you were submerged in grapes for a while. What were you doing? Tell us. I was uh, the executive director of the Washington State Wine Commission for six years. That is a sounds like a fantastic position. Uh, you must drink wine all day. Well, no, uh, you have to do some work uh, behind that, but uh, it was a great experience. I met many wonderful people like yourself from the wine industry, and... Um, I love Washington State. I was the tourism director uh, for six years prior to that. So I'm all about traveling to Washington and tasting through the state. That's great. And you, I, I didn't realize that you were actually from the tourism department prior to that. Yes. That makes sense. And yeah. uh, it's good to talk about Washington. We actually we have a lot of cool things to sell to the world. We do. Food and technology and planes and books, <laughs> all sorts of things. And we're going to jump into your coffee company. Um, what was the inspiration behind coffee? I know that you must like Starbucks. You saw them. I want to be an empire. <laughs> well, I love coffee. I have always loved it. In fact, um, I grew up with coffee, you know, percolating on the counter, you know, all day long. My parents, as did most of our parents during that age, drink coffee during the day and through the night. Through the night. <laughs> well, tell you what, uh, when we come back, we're going to dive into those two beautiful packages of coffee and um, learn exactly what you're doing behind Pollard Coffee Company, right here on Happy Hour Radio. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KVI. The glass is always half full. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio with the Commodore of Cocktails, Christopher Chan. 
And welcome back to Happy Hour Radio here on 570 KVI. If you have a question, uh, email us at ask at happyhourradio.net. Hey, coming up on the show, we're going to learn how to speak Spanish wine with Steve Metzler of Classical Wines of Spain. And right now, we're going to get our buzz going on with Robin Pollard, owner and founder of Pollard Coffee Company. Robin, you brought two bags of beans. Tell us about how you source your coffee. Well, first of all, I work with a wonderful coffee importer, um, principally one importer that's located in California. And we've developed a great relationship. And so I'm buying you know, superior quality beans from all over the world. When I started getting into coffee, the first thing I did was buy green beans from various parts of the world to really understand the varietal differences and um, farming practices, what goes into growing those beans. And so it was just through experimentation and developing the taste and then understanding how to bring out the very best characteristics of those beans through the roasting process was just fascinating to me. And it was, um, you know, similar to making wine. You start with a good source. Um, It's hard to mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) For most people, anyway. Do you... Working online, how do you source green beans? I mean, can you like buy a pound on Amazon? I imagine, or for there are. Um, I really got started. Chris and I got started into this as kind of home roasters. We bought a small home roasting, you know, uh, coffee roaster, and um, you can buy as small as one pound. But now I'm buying 130 pound bags. Wow, what's a small roaster look like? Look like a little microwave that <laughs> sits on your counter, and we burned two of two up um, through our <laughs> experimentation process. And then I bought a commercial roaster from a family-owned company in Idaho, Dietrich. Oh, and, so you sourced coffee beans from all over the world. How many different countries do you think or regions did you find beans from before you landed on a decision to what you've got in your bags? Well, I um, concentrate on Central American and East African as well as Indonesian. And my current offerings uh, have a a range of beans that I offer to my customers, ranging from Sulawesi and Sumatra from Indonesia, Guatemala, Costa Rica. Um, I do have some Brazil uh, beans coming in soon. And um, I love the African uh, coffees, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Burundi, Yemen, um, what I brought with me today were uh, a sample of Ethiopia Yurkashef as well as a Indonesian Sumatra. And I opened the bank so you can smell the differences in... I love it. Oh, this is great. I do love the smell of, of fresh roasted coffee. And this is ground... Mm. Wow. So you that's know- the Sumatra, which we kind of liken to a Cabernet. Yeah, it's very dark. Um, it's... There's a spice note, a chocolate note here. Wow. And this so this is from Indonesia. Yes. Indonesia. And it's, do you have one source for grape, uh, grapes? <laughs> one source for beans in Indonesia? Um, I work through an importer because I'm still relatively small. I don't buy directly from the farmers. Uh, but the company I work with do buy direct. You've so, got some cool names here. So tell me about uh, the Batik and the Ketenji. Well, I decided um, to kind of take a departure from most um, back labels on coffee bags and decided to really honor the role that women play in the coffee industry as well as farming in general. And so I came up with names of textiles that are indigenous to that region. So Katenge is really a a name of a textile um, from Africa, Batik, Indonesia, Jaspi is another name of one of my um, beans from Central America. And so these labels actually reflect some of the design from those fabrics, correct? Correct. Yeah, those are neat. It's really pretty. I like the black and white. Um, it reminds me of a winery that I, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Andrew Will's got black and white labels, too. Um, so... How many coffees are you producing now? These are two, and you have how many more? I have currently um, six um, different uh, single-origin beans that I'm offering, and I also blend. Uh, One of my niches is to custom roast, and so I really develop a profile for every customer to really uh, roast something that's going to suit their palate. 
Interesting. It's like one of those color analysts for uh, um, fashion. <laughs> you can do the coffee analyst. And how have you determined that some of the roasting is just right? Is it, is it like wine? You know when you've had enough maceration, it's just roasted. You get to extract the peak flavors and spices and aromas? Yes, it's practice and tasting and practice and tasting. And I cup after every roast to to see and and I keep a log on every roast um so that I'm achieving some consistency roast to roast but every bean needs to be treated you know um differently uh, depending on how it was processed where it's from the the beauty of the coffee business and the roasting I can tell in 15 minutes whether or not it's going to be a good batch or not <laughs> unlike wine you have to wait a a period of time. Yeah, sometimes you don't. You get that VA screaming out of the barrel. It's like, okay. Um, we're here talking with Robin Pollard, owner, founder of Pollard Coffee Company. Um, check it out. You can find these six indigenous varieties of coffee from all around the world. Uh, PollardCoffee.com. Custom Roaster, if you have some interest in, in really trying something with terroir, um, much like wine, these are these are basically wines with a kick of caffeine. Uh, these are coffees from around the world and very true to their origin. Um, how do you pr- propose we best extract the flavor? We talked about a percolator moments <laughs> ago when you were chatting about your um, getting into the business, but is this a French press? Is this espresso? What do you suggest for each different variety of coffee that you roast? Well, they work you know, surprisingly well regardless of, of how you're brewing them. Um, because we try these um, in an espresso machine. I do drip um, brewing, and they're very versatile. So um, I would say that I'm not necessarily roasting to a particular style of brewing, but um, more they'll they'll stand up to whatever. So, you, so you've you got the perfect roast for multifunction. They are. Multi-brewing. I like that, um, because sometimes I like espresso when I would, just want to go boom because I don't want to sit around for a cup of, cop- a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, but I'd use a, uh, a drip coffee at home. And so, what does a pound of coffee run for from Pollard Coffee Company? They're sixteen dollars a pound. I like that. You can't even send a letter to Africa for sixteen dollars, <laughs> and yet you've got some coffee beans roasted here. And um, have you? Do you have a favorite one for the morning and a favorite one for the evening? Well, the the Central American. Uh, Coffees in general, I think, are very smooth and balanced and are nice for, you know, a a cup in the afternoon. Um, I tend to drink the Ethiopians in the morning because I love being able to drink a cup of blueberries. (laughs) Uh, It's really the notes that come out uh, for me when I'm I'm smelling an Ethiopian bean. Um, Again, you know, every... Everyone's palate is different. Everyone's is preference true. is different. This is and true. Um, that's just a, my personal choice. Well, I think this is really neat. I know you've been, uh, you embarked on this, this new uh, endeavor about a year ago? Two years now. Two years now. Yeah. And uh, the, all the trials and, and uh, tribulations of, of purchasing beans and roasting and practicing. So you're, do you have a title now? Uh, I'm an advanced sommelier, and you would be. Master Roaster. Master Roaster. I love it. Um, check out PollardCoffee.com, where you can enjoy uh, coffees from Africa, Indonesia, Central America, and more. Um, it's really a fascinating uh, endeavor for you. And I, I love the fact that Seattle and Washington State is really into coffee. And if you're into wines from around the world, I invite you to check out PollardCoffee.com. Robin, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you so much. Um, next up. I'm going to learn Spanish, and I, I was practicing Spanish earlier, so now están el tiempo por vino. <laughs> That's a different kind of Spanish. Welcome, Steve Metzler of Classical Wines of Spain to Happy Hour Radio. Okay, gracias, Christopher. <laughs> Bienvenidos, <laughs> señor. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking a different kind of Spanish, but let's speak Spanish wine. You founded Spanish wines, uh, excuse me, Classical Wines of Spain 30 years ago in Seattle? It was 1984, uh, directly out of retail here in Seattle, uh, uh, I guess I'm slightly older than I look uh, because uh, it was already in 76 that I was a young kid uh, getting my hands on bottles from all over the world and uh, just loving it. And Spain 
uh, sort of stuck out like a sore thumb in the early days. Uh, here it is stuck right to the south side of France, and yet, uh, you know, relatively little was, was going on. And so it was one of my early challenges to figure out why. And uh, uh, but and as it turns out, uh, there, there are solid historical reasons for that. Uh, before the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s and uh, of course, uh, the, in the 19th century, great wines had been developed in Spain, just as they had been in France and Germany and Italy. Uh, but but then uh, Spain sort of fell off the map, right when mass media was coming about and telling us about Beaujolais Nouveau and Champagne and things. And so, uh, uh, so it was not until the late 70s that things started happening again. And so you went to school for wine, or you just went on a walkabout in Europe and discovered wine? No, I discovered wine right here in Seattle. Oh. Uh, a pure apprenticeship in a uh, uh, in the pre-supermarket wine days of, of Seattle when, when wine was uh, was uh, pretty much uh, put on a pedestal, and we and we studied the great wines, and 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 they were still affordable enough to to. Uh, to <laughs> That's right. Even it's... for a. Uh, Poor post uh, postgraduate student at the time. So. My father loves pulling out all these old so, wines with labels mm-hmm. from Safeway at you know mm-hmm. six dollars or mm-hmm. something like that. And it's Absolutely. like classified yeah. growth. Yeah. It's amazing. Speaking with Steve Metzler, founder of Classical Wines of Spain, here on Happy Hour Radio. Um, Steve, when you founded, what did it take? I know that when we were chatting with Chris earlier, he was bonded, but did you have to do anything special to start a wine company or distributor? Well, uh, you start on a on a shoestring. And uh, and in the wine business, you can you can start uh, uh, as an agent uh, before. But we we early on got our import license. That's when we uh, date our company, 1984, 30 years this year. So. That's the year I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. That was a great year. Great year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found some wine too that year. <laughs> Speaking with Steve Metz with Classical Wines of Spain. Um, so, Steve, I really love Spanish wines, and I'm glad you brought a couple. But let's talk about all the regions. Or let's break down Spain in terms of sparkling, white, and red. What are the wines that if people went to the store and they looked at Spain, they would understand? What sparkling wines are famous from Spain? Well, well, first of all, the, the range of wines from Spain is, is unequaled from any other country uh, because you do have sparkling, you have reds, whites on a world-class level, and then you have the whole world from the south of sherries and, uh, and, and dessert wines that are unique to Spain. So it's, it's an unbelievable country for variety, uh, and the topography even uh, accentuates that because it's, uh, it's basically a continent stuck onto a continent, Atlantic to Mediterranean and and high plateau elevations in between and mountain ranges, uh, the highest mean elevation outside of Switzerland in all of Europe. So not so, being a geography major, if I put a map of Spain or a map of Washington over Spain, which is larger? Uh, Spain is larger. Spain would, uh, would superimpose over the state of Texas, uh, touching all the corners, although it is... Uh, it is with fits well within Texas, but but more or less occupies the same footprint on a map. I love it. Well, we're going to dive into that long list of great wines from Spain, the sparkling, the whites, the reds, the fortifieds, and dessert wines. When we come back, speaking with Steve Metzler of Classical Wines of Spain on Happy Hour Radio. I want to thank my guests, uh, Robin Pollard of Pollard Coffee Company and Chris Camarda of Andrew Will. It was a pleasure to have them on Happy Hour Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KVI. Grab a stool. You're listening to Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio, with master mixologist Christopher Chan. And welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Um, I have the pleasure of speaking with one of our wine pioneers, the founder of Visionary, Steve Metzler of Classical Wines of Spain. That's classicalwines.com. He has an amazing portfolio of fantastic wines. You can find them all at classicalwines.com. And Steve, we're about to embark on a, a journey taking us around the continent or country of Spain. And uh, tell us about the sparklings, the whites, the reds, and then the other wines that people would really enjoy and that are famous from Spain. Well, the uh, 
the the wines that most people do know when they know something about Spanish wines are those wines that were that were established uh, by let's say the early 20th century and that includes the sparkling that you mentioned uh, the specific term is cava c a v a uh, centered in the uh, region of Catalonia uh, Barcelona being the capital and and these were wines that were uh, developed in the uh, in the style of the great french champagnes uh, fermented in the bottle uh, and uh, and um, enjoyed early success and then uh, came into the American market in a big way in the 1970s as incredible values for for uh, for uh, true sparkling wine uh, yeah, fermented I, and aged in the bottle. So I really enjoy them. They are a great value mm-hmm. for sparkling wine. So does the term cava mean, well, tell our listeners, is cava a cave, is it a grape, or is it a sparkling wine? Which Well, cava is Catalan for the Castilian word cueva. Cava, and that, that's a cave. Uh, it means a cellar, basically, and uh, and so. But it's uh, it's it's simply a, uh, a an official process. Uh, uh, the in what in France is called appellation controlée is the the controlled winemaking. Uh, in this case, is in Spain denominación de origen do Cava, it refers to the process, the method champenoise process. So it can actually be produced in any region of Spain, uh, but uh, but about uh, by default, ninety five percent of it is is Catalonia, and it's associated with with uh, Catalonia. And that's why Spanish cava is such a great value because it's it's fermented, it's built the same way as they do the fine wines in Champagne, and yet not even close, not even nearly close to the to the prices of Champagne. These are really $10, $15 sparkling wines. Well, that's that's what has uh, created their entry to the market, but it's at the same time we have to uh, point out that uh, there's also a premium level and uh, more and more as Spain has is breaking down the long barriers in the market or the long uh, misconceptions, prejudices, that sort of thing, or simply the the francophilic uh, focus of, of wine drinkers, uh, they're discovering that uh, that there are artisanal producers in Spain that produce some wonderful $30 bottles, in which case you don't even have to leave off the value argument uh, because that's going to get you a better bottle than, than the uh, mass-produced uh, non-vintage French champagne in that same price range. I agree, and you have a fantastic sparkling wine, Montmarcal or Montmarsal. Montmarsal. Montmarsal mm-hmm. sparkling cava, and that's uh, from the Catalonia region as well. That's right. That's right. It's uh, actually uh, I d- didn't bring as an example one today, but you're familiar with it. It's uh, actually a brand that's been with us the entire thirty years. Yeah, and a it, wonderful producer. That's a lovely sparkling wine. Tell us about some of the whites. Um, how many? Diff- there's Viura, which is a white grape that's predominantly grown in, in Spain, but what are the really high-end whites? Well, the uh, the the white grapes uh, from Galicia in the northwest have uh, have become especially well-accepted internationally, and uh, this is the part of Spain that is uh, exactly uh, analogous to the northwest part of the United States, exactly where we're sitting. It's uh, it's rainy, it's green, <laughs> uh, in fact, where the, uh, the great Albariño variety grows they get more rain than we do here in in Seattle so so uh, actually uh, my wife and I are thinking about uh planting some here. Oh, so, I like that idea. In so. fact, we do have a little bit of Albarino here in Washington State. So for all of our happy hour listeners um, out there, we are looking at the country of Spain on a map. To the far right, upper right, is Catalonia, where we just talked about cava, the sparkling wine. And now we're off to the far left, top upper left corner, and we're talking about Galicia and Albarino. Are there yeah. other whites in Spain that we should consider? Absolutely. Uh, well, there's another variety from uh, Galicia called Godello. Uh, a little bit less known, but uh, it's becoming very popular among the sommelier crowd because Albarino became too well known, and it's always <laughs> better to show your customers something that they don't know yes, already. It's, like- uh, there's more pride uh, in selling. Uh, but then uh, I would say the the number one white uh, premium white in Spain on a on a commercial scale would be Rueda, and the Verdejo grape variety. That's a little closer to Madrid, so it's like Beaujolais to Paris. It's the it's the wine that everybody asks for, and you can get very uh, mediocre examples, and you can get fantastic examples like a single vineyard wine we've sold every vintage of since 1985 called Martin Sancho. Oh yes, I remember that. 
Well, we tasted that at the uh, Rainier Club that year. And that's a wine uh, actually produced by a man who was knighted by the King of Spain for his work uh, uh, saving that grape variety, the oh. Verdejo. Angel Rodriguez. He saved it. So, I like that. Yeah. And uh, so that's uh, Albarino, Ruida, Verdejo, and then how about some of the reds? There's Rioja, there's Ribeiro del Duero, and then there's, gosh, so many other areas. Yeah. But uh, Well, the, the big, let's say the big four... Uh, are Rioja. We have to start with Rioja, based on the Tempranillo grape variety. This is north, uh, northern Spain, uh, about as close as you can get to the Atlantic and produce red wine. Uh, and then you have, from the same grape variety, but produced uh, as a monovarietal, the region of Ribera del Duero that we will taste today. Uh, the uh, progenitor example of that region, Tinto Pesquera, that's Tempranillo, 100%, in a, a slightly heartier, more structured, age-worthy style than, than, than typical Rioja. And then in Catalonia, as well, you have the famous uh, Priorat wine district, based upon the varieties Grenache and Carignan, like in the Rhone Valley. Although, Grenache, in this case, these varieties actually originate in Spain and later migrated to France. Oh, interesting. Uh, and the wines from Priorat are immense... Uh, Anyone who's looking for a style of wine to compare with their biggest Washington uh, Cabernet or Syrah will be happy with a with a bottle of red wine from Priorat, a good one anyway. And then number four would be uh, the Menthea variety from the Northwest and and a region called Bierzo, and uh, not quite as well known as the other three, but certainly has can produce wines at the same level and being. Uh, a little further towards the northwest, a little rainier climate, you have a, uh, an elegance at the same time that they're quite powerful and spicy. So it's interesting. As you speak, I hear you speak perfect Spanish, and you pronounce these words with a little bit of a character twist on these words. I know when I say Bierzo, it's spelled Bierzo to me. Yeah, well, the, uh, the Z and the C in Castilian Spanish are pronounced with as, as TH. And this is grammatical. It's uh, everyone out there must absolutely forget for the last time the story about the king with a lisp. It's absolutely not true. If you say casa, that means house. If you say caza with a z, that means big game. Big, big game? difference. Like a like an animal or like, like a, a Super Bowl. Like, like a big big animal. Yeah, <laughs> something good to eat. I love it. So we've got Rioja Tempranillo. We've got Ribeiro del Duero, which is also Tempranillo. We've got the uh, wines of Priorat, which are Grenache and uh, Carignan. And maybe a Monastral is over there, too? Well, in Priorat, they actually do mix in some Syrah and Cabernet. It's allowed and, and Merlot. The Monastral is a variety from the southeast. Uh, in the, it's definitely a Mediterranean variety and uh, uh, is related, if not the origin, of the Mourved grape variety of, of southern France and, um, and can produce very uh, concentrated, silky, round red wines uh, as well. But... Um, uh, um, so that that would round out uh, the the most famous district uh, for producing the wines of the Monastrel variety is called Humilla. Humilla, that's right. Yeah. Jumila. Jumila. Humilla. <laughs> yeah. We're speaking with uh, Steve Metzler of Classical Wines of Spain on Happy Hour Radio, and Steve just poured this beautiful white wine in my glass that smells amazing. It smells of um, toast and toasted almonds and bread yeast uh, or bread dough. Um, this is the wine I've been waiting for. This is a fortified wine from Spain, and it's called uh, La Gitana, the Gypsy, and the, the, the wine is a manzanilla, manzanilla which comes from the seacoast town of San Lucar de Barrameda. And it's a wine that is aged literally in the sea because it's a, it's a, it's a wine building built on the beach uh, with cliffs behind, and it's bathed in the marine layer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And this is a style of sherry that has nothing to do with any sherry that, uh, that most people have, have been familiar with before. It's pale uh, Pale green, golden in color. The, in addition to the aromas that you mentioned, uh, which are influenced by the yeast that lives with the wine inside the barrel, is this maritime character. When when I'm down on the beach at low tide and you smell the algae and the seaweed, uh, that's what's in this wine. When I'm uh, down at the at the Chittenden Locks and uh, and it's low tide and the and the 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 
water is spilling over and churning it up, and you get the smell. I said, it smells just like Lagitana. This is amazing. If uh, It's sherry, everybody, but this is different. This is Lagitana. Um, it's imported by Classical Wines of Spain. And I, I invite everyone to get on the sherry bandwagon. Uh, Aragona just uh, is a new restaurant uh, that's been wine directed by my friend um, Chris Tangi, master master sommelier. He's pouring a lot of sherry. Go there, find this is absolutely delicious, and it tastes just like you described. Um, I invite everyone. You'll love sherry like I do. It's so uh, complex and refreshing at the same time. And I see you bought. You've also brought one of the most famous red wines to me in the world, Tinto Pesquera. Tell us about this wine. Well, Pescara became an icon. Uh, it is the wine credited with dragging Spain out of the uh, doldrums of the mid-20th century and putting it on the world wine map. And my wife, Almudena, and I are very proud to have been key players in that because we discovered the grower, Alejandro Fernandez, before he had ever exported a single bottle of wine. Now he's in over, over 40 countries. And we opened most of those markets for him. In our early years, we spent a lot of time on the road with Alejandro, talking to the to the famous uh, British wine writers, and uh, and in Northern Europe, a man named Hubrecht Dyker, who wrote the World Atlas of Spain. We were key contributors. In other words, uh, here we are in Seattle, and we introduced the world to to Spanish wines. That's uh, awesome. I love that story. And this wine is just dark purple, black, opaque. It paints the glass. Um, it looks so inviting and juicy. Uh, and this is 100% Tempranillo. Yes, from the Ribera del Duero, uh, which is the the first great region, red wine region outside of Rioja, to to get this international following. And it's a wine that has uh, has been produced on a consistent basis now since 19 the mid 1970s, and people have. Plenty of uh, age-worthy examples in their cellars to uh, to take it very seriously at the highest level of a fine Bordeaux, and in fact, I, I have knowledge that you you tried a 1990 vintage quite recently, and uh, and uh, I think it was did. showing well. That so. was fun, yeah. When we had you for dinner at uh, the folks' house, this has been a tent. fantastic. Um, Steve, I want you back. Let's let's do this again. Can we? Oh, sure. I'd love to have Pleasure. you. This, because Spain is really interesting and so fun. Um, that's Steve Metzler of Classical Wines of Spain, who just joined me on Happy Hour Radio. Find his wines at classicalwines.com. Coming up next week, uh, it's Washington Wine Month, and we'll chat with the folks behind Taste Washington, dive into some distilled spirits from Seattle, and get spicy with the man behind Dimitri's Bloody Mary Mix, Seattle's own Dimitri Palace. Hey, as always, life is better with a designated driver. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to find me 24-7, come visit happyhourradio.net. Cheers. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KBI.